Chapter 1 of Sentimental Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. Chapter 1 A Promising Pupil. On the 15th of September, 1840, about six o'clock in the morning, the Ville de Montreux just on the point of starting, was sending forth great whirlwinds of smoke in front of the Quai Saint-Bernard. People came rushing on board in breathless haste. The traffic was obstructed by casks, cables, and baskets of linen. The sailors answered nobody. People jostled one another. Between the two paddle-boxes was piled up a heap of parcels, and the uproar was drowned in the loud hissing of the steam, which, making its way through the plates of sheet-iron, enveloped everything in a white cloud, while the bell of the prow kept ringing continuously. At last the vessel set out, and the two banks of the river, stocked with warehouses, timber-yards, and manufactories, opened out like two huge ribbons being unrolled. A young man of eighteen, with long hair holding an album under his arm, remained near the helm without moving. Through the haze he surveyed steeples, buildings of which he did not know the names. Then, with a parting glance, he took in the Ile de Saint-Louis, the Cité, Notre-Dame, and presently, as Paris disappeared from his view, he heaved a deep sigh. Frederick Moreau, having just taken his bachelor's degree, was returning home to Nogent-sur-Seine, where he would have to lead a languishing existence for two months, before going back to begin his legal studies. His mother had sent him, with enough to cover his expenses, to Havre to see his uncle, from whom she had expectations of his receiving an inheritance. He had returned from that place only yesterday, and he indemnified himself for not having the opportunity of spending a little time in the capital by taking the longest possible route to reach his own part of the country. The hubbub had subsided. The passengers had all taken their places. Some of them stood warming themselves around the machinery, and the chimney spat forth with a slow, rhythmic rattle its plume of black smoke. Little drops of dew trickled over the copper plates, the deck quivered with the vibration from within, and the two paddle wheels, rapidly turning around, lashed the water. The edges of the river were covered with sand. The vessel swept past rafts of wood which began to oscillate under the rippling of the waves, or a boat without sails in which a man sat fishing. Then the wandering haze cleared off. The sun appeared, the hill which ran along the course of the Seine to the right subsided by degrees, and another rose nearer on the opposite bank. It was crowned with trees, which surrounded low-built houses, covered with roofs in the Italian style. They had sloping gardens divided by fresh walls, iron railings, grass plots, hot houses, and vases of geranium laid out regularly on the terraces where one could lean forward on one's elbow. More than one spectator longed, on beholding those attractive residences which looked so peaceful, to be the owner of one of them, and to dwell there till the end of his days with a good billiard table, a sailing boat, and a woman or some other object to dream about. The agreeable novelty of a journey by water made such outbursts natural. Already the wags on board were beginning their jokes. Many began to sing. Gaiety prevailed, and glasses of brandy were poured out. 
Frederick was thinking about the apartment which he would occupy over there, on the plan of a drama, on subjects for pictures, on future passions. He found that the happiness merited by the excellence of his soul was slow in arriving. He declaimed some melancholy verses. He walked with rapid step along the deck. He went on till he reached the end at which the bell was, and, in the centre of a group of passengers and sailors, he saw a gentleman talking soft nothings to a countrywoman, while fingering the gold cross which she wore over her breast. He was a jovial blade of forty with frizzled hair. His robust form was encased in a jacket of black velvet. Two emeralds sparkled in his cambric shirt, and his wide white trousers fell over odd-looking red boots of Russian leather set off with blue designs. The presence of Frederick did not discompose him. He turned round and glanced several times at the young man with winks of inquiry. He next offered cigars to all those who were standing around him, but getting tired, no doubt, of their society, he moved away from them and took a seat further up. Frederick followed him. The conversation, at first, turned on the various kinds of tobacco. Then, quite naturally, it glided into a discussion about women. The gentleman in the red boots gave the young man advice. He put forward theories, related anecdotes, referred to himself by way of illustration, and he gave utterance to all these things in a paternal tone, with the ingeniousness of entertaining depravity. He was a Republican in his opinions. He had travelled, he was familiar with the inner life of theatres, restaurants, and newspapers, and knew all the theatrical celebrities whom he called by their Christian names. Frederick told him confidentially about his projects, and the elder man took an encouraging view of them. But he stopped talking to take a look at the funnel. Then he went mumbling rapidly through a long calculation in order to ascertain how much each stroke of the piston at so many times per minute would come to, etc., and having found the number, he spoke about the scenery, which he admired immensely. Then he gave expression to his delight at having got away from business. Frederick regarded him with a certain amount of respect, and politely manifested a strong desire to know his name. The stranger, without a moment's hesitation, replied, Jacques Arnoux, proprietor of L'Art Industriel, Boulevard Montmartre. A man's servant in a golden lace cap came up and said, would monsieur have the kindness to go below? Mademoiselle is crying. L'Artin du Ciel was a hybrid establishment, wherein the functions of an art journal and a picture shop were combined. Frederick had seen this title several times in the bookseller's window, in his native place on big prospectuses, on which the name of Jacques Arnoux displayed itself magisterially. The sun's rays fell perpendicularly, shedding a glittering light on the iron hoops around the masts, the plates of the barricades, and the surface of the water, which, at the prow, was cut into two furrows that spread out as far as the borders of the meadows. At each winding of the river a screen of pale poplars presented itself with the utmost uniformity. The surrounding country at this point had an empty look. In the sky there were little white clouds which remained motionless, and the sense of weariness which vaguely diffused itself over everything seemed to retard the progress of the steamboat and to add to the insignificant appearance of the passengers. Putting aside a few persons of good position who were travelling first class, they were artisans or shopmen with their wives and children. As it was customary at the time to wear old clothes when travelling, 
They nearly all had their heads covered by shabby Greek caps or discolored hats, thin black coats that had become quite threadbare from constant rubbing against writing desks, or frock coats with the castings of their buttons loose from continual service in the shop. Here and there some roll-collar waistcoat afforded a glimpse of a calico shirt stained with coffee. Pinchbeck pins were stuck into cravats that were all torn. List shoes were kept up by stitched straps. Two or three roughs who held in their hands bamboo canes with leathern hoops kept looking askance at their fellow passengers, and fathers of families opened their eyes wide while making inquiries. People chatted either standing up or squatting over their luggage. Some went to sleep in various corners of the vessel. Several occupied themselves with eating. The deck was soiled with walnut shells, butt-ends of cigars, peelings of pears, and the droppings of pork butcher's meat, which had been carried wrapped up in paper. Three cabinet-makers in blouses took their stand in front of the bottle-case. A harp-player in rags was resting with his elbows on his instrument. At intervals could be heard the sound of falling coals in the furnace, a shout or a laugh, and the captain kept walking on the bridge from one paddle-box to the other without stopping for a moment. Frederick, to get back to his place, pushed forward the grating leading into the part of the vessel reserved for first-class passengers, and in so doing disturbed two sportsmen with their dogs. What he then saw was like an apparition. She was seated in the middle of a bench all alone, or at any rate he could see no one, dazzled as he was by her eyes. At the moment when he was passing, she raised her head. His shoulders bent involuntarily, and, when he seated himself some distance away, on the same side, he glanced towards her. She wore a wide straw hat with red ribbons which fluttered in the wind behind her. Her black tresses, twining around the edges of her large brows, descended very low, and seemed amorously to press the oval of her face. Her robe of light muslin spotted with green spread out in numerous folds. She was in the act of embroidering something, and her straight nose, her chin, her entire person was cut out on the background of the luminous air and the blue sky. As she remained in the same attitude, he took several turns to the right and to the left to hide from her his change of position. Then he placed himself close to her parasol, which lay against the bench, and pretended to be looking at the sloop in the river. Never before had he seen more lustrous dark skin, a more seductive figure, or more delicately shaped fingers than those through which the sunlight gleamed. He stared with amazement at her work-basket, as if it were something extraordinary. What was her name, her place of residence, her life, her past? He longed to become familiar with the furniture of her apartment, all the dresses that she had worn, the people whom she visited, and the desire of physical possession yielded to a deeper yearning, a painful curiosity that knew no bounds. A negress wearing a silk handkerchief tied around her head made her appearance, holding by the hand a little girl already tall for her age. The child, whose eyes were swimming with tears, had just awakened. The lady took the little one on her knees. Mademoiselle was not good, though she should soon be seven. Her mother would not leave her any more. She was too often parted for being naughty. And Frederick heard those things with delight, as if he had made a discovery, an acquisition. He assumed that she must be of Andalusian descent, perhaps a Creole. Had she brought this negress across with her from the West Indian islands? 
Meanwhile, his attention was directed to a long shawl with violet stripes thrown behind her back over the copper support of the bench. She must have, many a time, wrapped it around her waist, as the vessel sped through the midst of the waves, drawn it over her feet, gone to sleep in it. Frederick suddenly noticed that with the sweep of its fringes it was slipping off, and it was on the point of falling into the water when, with a bound, he secured it. She said to him, "'Thanks, monsieur.' Their eyes met. "'Are you ready, my dear?' cried Lord Arnaud, presenting himself at the hood of the companion ladder. Mademoiselle Marthe ran over to him, and clinging to his neck, she began pulling at his moustache. The strains of her harp were heard. She wanted to see the music played, and presently the performer on the instrument let forward by the negress entered the place reserved for saloon passengers. Arnoux recognized in him a man who had formerly been a model, and vowed him to the astonishment of the bystanders. At length the harpist, flinging back his long hair over his shoulders, stretched out his hands and began playing. It was an oriental ballad all about poniards, flowers, and stars. The man in rags sang it in a sharp voice. The twanging of the harp strings broke the harmony of the tune with false notes. He played more vigorously. The chords vibrated, and their metallic sounds seemed to send forth sobs, and, as it were, the plaint of a proud and vanquished love. On both sides of the river, woods extended as far as the edge of the water. A current of fresh air swept past them, and Madame Arnoux gazed vaguely into the distance. When the music stopped, she moved her eyes several times, as if she were starting out of a dream. The harpist approached them with an air of humility. While Arnoux was searching in his pockets for money, Frederick stretched out towards the cap his closed hand, and then, opening it in a shamefaced manner, he deposited in it a louis d'or. It was not vanity that had prompted him to bestow this alms in her presence, but the idea of a blessing in which he thought she might share, an almost religious impulse of the heart. Arnoux, pointing out the way, cordially invited him to go below. Frederick declared that he had just lunched, on the contrary, he was nearly dying of hunger, and he had not a single centime in his purse. After that, it occurred to him that he had a perfect right, as well as anyone else, to remain in the cabin. Ladies and gentlemen were seated before round tables, lunching while an attendant went about serving out coffee. Monsieur and Madame Arnoux were in the far corner to the right. He took a seat on the long bench covered with velvet, having picked up a newspaper which he found there. They would have to take the diligence of Montereau for Chalon. Their tour in Switzerland would last a month. Madame Arnoux blamed her husband for his weakness in dealing with his child. He whispered in her ear something agreeable, no doubt, for she smiled. Then he got up to draw down the window curtain at her back. Under the low white ceiling, a crude light filled the cabin. Frederick, sitting opposite to the place where she sat, could distinguish the shade of her eyelashes. She just moistened her lips with her glass and broke a little piece of crust between her fingers. The lapis lazuli locket, fastened by a little golden chain to her wrist, made a ringing sound every now and then, as it touched her plate. Those present, however, did not appear to notice it. At intervals one could see, through the small portholes, the side of a boat taking away passengers or putting them on board. Those who sat round the tables stooped towards the openings, 
and called out the names of the various places they passed along the river. Arnoux complained of the cooking. He grumbled particularly at the amount of the bill and got it reduced. Then he carried off the young man towards the forecastle to drink a glass of grog with him. But Frederick speedily came back again to gaze at Madame Arnoux, who had returned to her awning, beneath which she seated herself. She was reading a thin, grey-covered volume. From time to time, the corners of her mouth curled and a gleam of pleasure lightened up her forehead. He felt jealous of the inventor of those things which appeared to interest her so much. The more he contemplated her, the more he felt that there were yawning abysses between them. He was reflecting that he should very soon lose sight of her irrevocably, without having extracted a few words from her, without leaving her even a souvenir. On the right a plain stretched out, on the left a strip of pasture land rose gently to meet a hillcock where one could see vineyards, groups of walnut trees, a mill embedded in the grassy slopes, and beyond that little zigzag paths over the white mass of rocks that reached up towards the clouds. What bliss it would have been to ascend side by side with her, his arm around her waist, while her gown would sweep the yellow leaves, listening to her voice and gazing up into her glowing eyes. The steamboat might stop, and all they would have to do was step out of it, and yet this thing, simple as it might be, was not less difficult than it would have been to move the sun. A little further on, a chateau appeared with pointed roof and square turrets, a flower garden spread out in the foreground, and avenues ran, like dark archways, under the tall linden trees. He pictured her to himself passing along by this group of trees, at that moment, a young lady and a young man showed themselves on the steps in front of the house, between the trunks of the orange trees. Then the entire scene vanished. The little girl kept skipping playfully around the place where he had stationed himself on the deck. Frederick wished to kiss her. She hid herself behind her nurse. Her mother scolded her for not being nice to the gentleman who had rescued her own shawl. Was this an indirect overture? Is she going to speak to me? he asked himself. Time was flying. How was he to get an invitation to the Arnoux's house? And he could think of nothing better than to draw her attention to the autumnal hues, adding, We are close to winter, the season of balls and dinner parties. But Arnoux was entirely occupied with his luggage. They had arrived at the point of the river's bank facing Serville. The two bridges drew nearer. They passed a rope walk, then a range of low-built houses, inside which there were pots of tars and splinters of wood, and brats went along the sand, turning head over heels. Frederick recognized a man with a sleeved waistcoat and called out to him, Make haste! They were at the landing place. He looked around anxiously for Hartnou amongst the crowd of passengers, and the other came and shook hands with him, saying, A pleasant time, dear monsieur! When he was on the quay, Frederick turned around. She was standing beside the helm. He cast a look towards her into which he tried to put his whole soul. She remained motionless, as if he had done nothing. Then, without paying the slightest attentions to the baissance of his manservant, "'Why didn't you bring the trap down here?' The man made excuses. "'What a clumsy fellow you are! Give me some money!' And after that he went off to get something to eat at an inn. A quarter of an hour later he felt an inclination to turn into the coachyard as if by chance. Perhaps he would see her again. What's the use of it? said he to himself. The vehicle carried him off. The two horses did not belong to his mother. 
She had borrowed one from Monsieur Chambrion, the tax collector, in order to have it yoked alongside of her own. Isidore, having set forth the day before, had taken a rest at Bray until evening, and had slept at Montereau, so that the animals, with restored vigour, were trotting briskly. Fields on which the crops had been cut stretched out in apparently endless succession, and by degrees Villeneuve, Saint-Georges, Ablon, Châtillon, Corbeil, and the other places his entire journey came back to his recollection with such vividness that he could now recall to mind fresh details, more intimate particulars. Under the lowest flounce of her gown her foot showed itself encased in a dainty silk boot of maroon shade. The awning made of ticking formed a wide canopy over her head, and the little red tassels of the edging kept perpetually trembling in the breeze. She resembled the woman of whom he had read in romances. He would have added nothing to the charms of her person, and would have taken nothing from them. The universe had suddenly become enlarged. She was a luminous point towards which all things converged, and, rocked by the movement of the vehicle, with half-dozed eyelids, and his face turned towards the clouds, he abandoned himself to a dreamy, infinite joy. At Bray he did not wait till the horses had got their oats. He walked on along the road ahead by himself. Arnoux had, when he had spoken to her, addressed her as Marie. He now loudly repeated the name, Marie! His voice pierced the air and was lost in the distance. The western sky was one great mass of flaming purple. Huge stacks of wheat, rising up in the midst of the stubble fields, projected giant shadows. A dog began to bark in a farmhouse in the distance. He shivered, seized with disquietude for which he could assign no cause. When Isidore had come up with him, he jumped up into the front seat to drive. His fit of weakness was past. He had thoroughly made up his mind to effect an introduction into the house of the Arnoux, and to become intimate with them. Their house should be amusing. Besides, he liked Arnoux. Then, who could tell? Thereupon, a wave of blood rushed up to his face. His temples throbbed. He cracked his whip, shook his reins, and set the horses going at such a pace that the old coachman repeatedly exclaimed, Easy, easy now, or they'll get broken-winded. Gradually, Frederick calmed down, and he listened to what the man was saying. Monsieur's return was impatiently awaited. Mademoiselle Louise had cried in her anxiety to go in the trap to meet him. Who, pray, is Mademoiselle Louise? Monsieur Rock's little girl, you know. Ah, I had forgotten, rejoined Frederick carelessly. Meanwhile, the two horses could keep up pace no longer. They were both getting lame, and nine o'clock struck at the Saint Laurent when he arrived at the parade in front of his mother's house. This house of large dimensions, with a garden looking out on the open country, added to the social importance of Madame Moreau, who was the most respected lady in the district. She came of an old family of nobles, of which the male line was now extinct. Her husband, a plebeian whom her parents forced her to marry, met his death by a sword thrust during her pregnancy, leaving her an estate much encumbered. She received visitors three times a week, and from time to time gave a fashionable dinner. But the number of wax candles was calculated beforehand, and she looked forward with some impatience to the payment of her rents. These pecuniary embarrassments, concealed as if there were some guilt attached to them, imparted a certain gravity to her character. 
Nevertheless, she displayed no prudery, no sourness, on the practice of her peculiar virtue. Her most trifling charities seemed munificent alms. She was consulted about the selection of servants, the education of young girls, and the art of making preserves, and Monseigneur used to stay at her house on the occasion of his episcopal visitations. Madame Moreau cherished a lofty ambition for her son. Through a sort of prudence grounded in the expectation of favours, she did not care to hear blame cast on the government. He would need patronage at the start, then, with its aid, he might become a councillor of state, an ambassador, a minister. His triumphs at the College of Seine warranted this proud anticipation. He had carried off there the prize of honour. When he entered the drawing-room, all present arose with a great racket. He was embraced, and the chairs, large and small, were drawn up in a big semicircle around the fireplace. Monsieur Gamblin immediately asked him what was his opinion about Madame Lafarge. This case, the rage of the period, did not fail to lead to a violent discussion. Madame Moreau stopped it, to the regret, however, of Monsieur Gamblin. He seemed it serviceable to the young man in his character of a future lawyer, and nettled at what had occurred, he left the drawing-room. Nothing should have caused surprise on the part of a friend of Père Roque. The reference to Père Roque led him to talk of Monsieur d'Ambreuse, who had just become the owner of the Domaine of La Fortelle. But the tax collector had drawn Frederick aside to know what he thought of Monsieur Guizot's latest work. They were all anxious to get some information about his private affairs, and Madame Benoit went cleverly to work with that end in view by inquiring about his uncle. How was that worthy relative? They no longer heard of him. Had he not a distant cousin in America? The cook announced that Monsieur's soup was served. The guests discreetly retired. Then, as soon as they were alone in the dining-room, his mother said to him in a low tone, "'Well?' The old man had received him in a very cordial manner, but without disclosing his intentions. Madame Moreau sighed. "'Where is she now?' was his thought. The diligence was rolling along the road, and, wrapped up in the shawl, no doubt, she was leaning against the cloth of the coupé, her beautiful head nodding to sleep. He and his mother were just going up to their apartments when a waiter from the Swan of the Cross brought him a note. "'What is it, pray?' "'It is Delaurier, who wants me,' said he. "'Ha! Your chum!' said Madame Moreau, with a contemptuous sneer. "'Certainly it is a nice hour to select.' Frederick hesitated, but friendship was stronger. He got his hat. "'At any rate, don't be long,' said his mother to him. End of chapter 1